Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, very glad you're with us for the Three Martini Lunch. We have a good martini with a little bit of a questionable aftertaste, as well as two crazy martinis, one of which will deal with how the left is looking at 9-11 21 years after the fact. But before we get to the crazy aspects of the 9-11 anniversary, I think it's important to uh, start here at the beginning by offering our own thoughts on 21 years since the heinous Al-Qaeda-led terrorist attack on our country that really changed this country forever. I saw a tweet yesterday, Jim, saying from someone, I can't remember who it was, saying, I've been waiting 21 years to go back to normal. I'm getting starting to think we're not going to get back to normal. Um, although that was, of course, what President Bush asked us all to do. But the world significantly changed in a number of ways as a result of that horrific days. And certainly for the families of everyone impacted, both on that day and then in military service and other sort of service uh, beyond that, you and I, of course, are old enough to not only remember that day. We were already uh, working professionals at that time. And the thing that I uh, mentioned yesterday on on social media, and the thing I'll mention here real quickly at the top, is the opportunity uh, my family and I had on our way back from our Michigan trip just about a month ago uh, to stop at the United Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Um, we went into it thinking that it would be a very poignant memorial, be a good teaching opportunity for the kids. I didn't even know there really was a visitor's center there. And, of course, you stop there first, and wow, you just get hit in the face in a very well-done exhibit uh, explaining everything that happened that day, not just with Flight 93, a little bit of background on, on al-Qaeda. Uh, I didn't sense any political agenda in there whatsoever. It's just a very fair telling of the day. And then in addition to the news footage, Jim, which I know for the same as you and just about everybody else, takes you immediately back to that day with your thoughts and emotions, they did an excellent job of focusing on the 40 people on board that plane uh, who really were the first people to fight back uh, against the terrorists that day, giving up their lives, knowing from their phone calls that they were going to be killed anyway, but still deciding to fight back and save people on the ground, most likely in Washington, that they didn't even know. And so to to learn about them, to see different details of their lives. And then there was the wall of um, uh, phone receivers where you could pick up and listen uh, to their messages to their family members, basically telling they loved them and goodbye. After everything I had seen already that day, I couldn't do it. My wife and my daughters listened to it a little bit, but uh, just really very a very emotional experience. And then you go to the memorial itself, and that's very powerful as well. You can see the marker where they believe the impact uh, site was. And um, Jim, uh, American heroism at its finest. And uh, I, I know we've talked about it many times, and we've thought about it many times over the past several years. So, Greg, um, my older son was born in this time of year uh, back in 2007. People can do the math on that. And so I was like, oh, when did this happen? In addition to being overjoyed to become a father, I had this in the back of my head. I was like, oh, okay, so this time of year won't seem quite as depressing. Um, this time of year, obviously, that you'll always mark the anniversary, but I'll always have something happy around this time of year. And that second week of September won't always have this metaphorical and sometimes literal cloud over it. And I guess it was a couple of years ago, probably around 2018 or so, I, I wrote something that kind of felt like the way I've, I've kind of felt on this day <clears throat> for the last few years, which is that 
by and large, Americans don't spend a lot of time thinking about Islamist terrorism anymore. Uh, Al-Qaeda is not, it still exists in one form or another, but we don't live, certainly don't live in daily fear. Uh, you could argue about whether it's that much of a threat anymore. Eventually it was superseded by ISIS. Bin Laden is dead. Just this past year, Zawahiri is dead. You know, we don't live in fear. And I kind of asked myself, is that what winning in the war on terror is? You know, we, we now have the Freedom Tower. Things were never going to go back to quote unquote normal. There was this New York skyline was always going to look different. People who drive by the Pentagon were always going to see where things looked different. Um, there, there was just no way we were going to be able to go back to that. But le- reaching a point where we don't think about terrorism, is that going back to normal? And the uh, kind of the flip side of that is, does it feel a little bit wrong to go back to normal? Is that representing forgetting it or something like that? Um, yesterday, uh, I definitely thought about it, definitely talked about it with my family. But I think yesterday was the day I spent the least amount of time thinking about 9-11. Uh, it was Sunday, start of NFL season. You know, life goes on. We live our lives. I think what became very clear to me, having my... Uh, two kids is the recognition is that we do now have a generation that has grown up in the aftermath. And this is something that's in the history books to them. And this is something abstract, although I think obviously we're doing our best to teach our kids just how intense that day was, how much it represented a turning point, not just what a tragedy it was, what an outrage it was, and this, you know, really hard lesson that our, our holiday from history, as Charles Kreithammer had put it, uh, of the 1990s had ended and there was a dangerous world and there were people who wanted to kill us for reasons, certainly on that day and in the immediate aftermath, we found very hard to understand. Um, so, you know, we are now living in an era of relative peace and prosperity. I think the events in Afghanistan last year uh, definitely put a have a lot of us asking what was it all about what was it all for are we safer again it's glad to see zawahiri dead and al-qaeda gone isis is much less of what it used to be baghdadi is dead um but the world does not lack for extremist groups and terror groups and people who want to harm us so uh kind of complicated thoughts as we reach the 21st anniversary um I'm, I'm, you know we are i think maybe that is one of the things that kind of leads into the controversy that we'll discuss in our third martini today. Yeah, absolutely right. And I hope you're right about that. After last year and uh, the way the withdrawal went and the Taliban coming back to power and great that we killed Zawahiri, but the fact that he felt comfortable enough to be, just be chilling on a balcony in Kabul means uh, I've I just fear certain things are coming back to the way they were in a bad way. But uh, but we will see. We will see. Hopefully, you're right. I like your optimistic look much better than than uh, my my fears of, of what's happening in the wake of last year. But uh, as you said, yes, we'll get to the, the crazy martini uh, related to 9-11 uh, a little bit later. Um, speaking of the withdrawal of Afghanistan, though, it's, it's certainly emboldened, it would appear, some of our uh, greatest global adversaries, uh, China saber-rattling with Taiwan, the Iranians, and of course, Russia. I don't think without the Afghanistan withdrawal, Putin is nearly as bold in going into Ukraine. But the good news is, is that he's getting his butt kicked right now. This Ukrainian counteroffensive seems to be gobbling up even more territory than the Ukrainians know what to do with. Uh, you point out in the jolt today from Reuters, Ukrainian forces kept pushing north in the Kharkiv region and advancing to its south and east. Ukraine's army chief said on Sunday, a day after their rapid surge forward drove Russia to abandon its 
main bastion in the area. In the worst defeat for Moscow forces since they were repelled from the outskirts of Kiev in March, thousands of Russian soldiers left behind ammunition and equipment as they fled the city of Izium, if I'm saying that right, which they had used as a logistics hub. Ukraine's chief commander said the armed forces had regained control of more than 3,000 square kilometers since the start of the month. Moscow's almost total silence on the defeat or any explanation for what had taken place in northeastern Ukraine provoked significant anger among some pro-war commentators and Russian nationalists on social media. Uh, some called on Sunday for Vladimir Putin to make immediate changes to ensure ultimate victory in the war. So, uh, Jim, once again, what uh, Putin thought would be over maybe by March uh, is still going on. And if uh, anybody's winning right now, it doesn't seem to be him. Yes, look, this is a very good martini with a little bit of a potentially bad aftertaste. I'll get to that in a moment. But look, since March, we've been we've been reacting with a, a sense of, wow, the Ukrainians really are um, fearless and plucky and they're you know facing overwhelming odds. And the Russia Russian army is um, was at one point was considered extraordinarily fearsome. I think the last year has demonstrated the Russian army was not quite as good as its reputation suggested. And there's now considerable evidence that a lot of the modernization that the Russian government had touted in recent years uh, was another name for a lot of garden variety corruption by military contractors and things like that. The Russian army is not fighting like a state of the art, high tech, uh, you know, exceptional force that the Russians expected it to be. But pretty much since March or April, there's been this question of, okay, the Ukrainians are much better at defense than we thought. However, are they going to be able to push back? Are they going to be able to drive the Russians out? And at this point, as of this recording, they're doing a, it sounds like a heck of a job of this, gaining considerable amounts of territory. And it really sounds like whatever limited morale the Russian army had is collapsing quickly. So on the one, you know, this is terrific. There is, as I tried to summarize it today in the, the, in the morning jolt, the good news is that Vladimir Putin and the Russian government are getting humiliated. The bad news is Vladimir Putin and the Russian government are getting humiliated because I, from the beginning of this, when I've said, look, obviously we want to help the Ukrainians, obviously we want to help uh, not let a country get swallowed up by imperialist ambitions. Um, we also are dealing with a country that has a large nuclear arsenal, a tradition of uh, decision making that sometimes baffles us in the West. And we don't want this to escalate into, you know, God forbid, nuclear war, but even just a broader war against NATO, etc. The question was, how could we stop Russia without escalating this further? And maybe that's an impossible task. A wounded, you know, I, the fear is that Putin and his regime turn into a wounded dog, which is more dangerous than a normal healthy dog. That is that is when you get someone desperate. That is when you get, you know. Uh, both fear and rage in the eyes. And you end up with this situation in which, you know, God forbid, Vladimir Putin might decide to set off some nuke to decide, okay, that's how I win. Or, uh, well, if I can't have Ukraine, no one can. Or, or you know, chemical weapons, biological weapons, uh, you know, some other effort to break the rules of war in some effort to show strength to avoid the absolute humiliation that comes with defeat. And I cannot emphasize enough uh, tried to write about this throughout the year, that Vladimir Putin believed that this one, he believed this was going to be a quick and easy win. And then also he believed that returning Ukraine to Russian, uh, the status of a vassal state, of effectively becoming an extension of Russia, would get him to be remembered in history as Vladimir the Great. Well, he's not getting that. And now the question is, does he become remembered as Vladimir the Defeated? 
Vladimir the Humiliated. And, you know, I think some you know, men will do desperate things to avoid a fate like that. So I hope that uh, NATO leaders and President Biden and everyone else is thinking, trying to think two steps ahead, trying to figure out some way where Russia can, um, I, I don't even know if we can go back to a status quo ante or you know, re- restore things to, to the way they were before the war, but put us in a situation where Russia does not feel um, that they have to lash out in order to salvage some pride or salvage some sense of national identity. And then the second thing that kind of comes out of this is I, kind of the focus of today's morning jolt is what lessons do the Russian people take from this experience? Ideally, they would say, wow, this was a terrible idea. We never should have gone along with this. Putin was not the wise and visionary leader we thought he was. Eastern Europe is going to have a whole bunch of independent countries that may or may not do what we want them to do. They can choose their own path in life. They can choose their own alliances. If they want to join NATO, they can join NATO. If they want to join the EU, they can join the EU. We cannot force our will onto them. Ideally, that would be what they would learn from this. I don't know if I don't think they're going to learn from this. They can all, you know, human beings love to find scapegoats. And the Russians will have genuine scapegoats. You can argue that this invasion was poorly planned. You can argue that uh, defense contractors did scam the Russian treasury. You can blame it on Putin himself. And I think if and when Putin dies, you'll suddenly hear a lot of criticism that people don't feel comfortable making now. It will come out of the woodwork. And also, you know, they'll probably blame it on those meddling kids like a uh, like a Scooby-Doo villain or something. <laughs> you'll end up in a situation in which Russia will say, well, it didn't work this time. And it's going to take us a while to rebuild our military, but we could work, it could work again. And ideally, we'd like to be in a situation where Russia is no longer imperialist. I do wonder, Greg, if that's just kind of baked in the cake of the Russian character. That's a good question. You also brought up a very good question in when all sides are going to agree that they're at a point where they can stop the hostilities. You know, how much will Zelensky or Putin or Biden demand in order for everybody to agree uh, for the Russian military to, you know, go all the way back home? You know, will it be status quo ante? Will it be out of the disputed territories? Will it be Crimea? I mean, uh, how how immediate and how far will that push be? I also saw a tweet from, I can't even remember which U.S. senator it was, saying, look at what the Ukrainians are doing. Imagine if we gave them the support that they needed. And I'm thinking, have you not shown up to work for the last eight months? What do you? Th- how do you think they're doing this? I mean, you've just passed. Well, well some of them, Greg. <laughs> there was that Hawaiian congressman who's also an airline pilot. Some of these guys haven't shown up to work for months, so they really do have an excuse. If you don't remember passing a forty billion dollar aid package, maybe it's time to pack it in. Wow. All right. Well, maybe you just need to keep track of your money and uh, and your human resources, and that's where Bambi can help your business. Look, HR is not just about avoiding risk. As a business leader, you need to do right by the people you employ, and that's why when it comes to HR, you need Bambi. Bambi is an HR platform built for businesses like yours, so you can automate the most important HR practices and get your own dedicated HR manager. First, Bambi's HR Autopilot automates your core policies, workplace training, and employee feedback. Then, your dedicated HR manager will help you navigate the more complex parts of HR and guide you to compliance, available by phone, email, or real-time chat. An in-house HR manager can cost up to $80,000 a year, but with Bambi, your dedicated HR manager starts at just $99 a month. No hidden fees, and you can cancel anytime. Fantastic service, 
And it's so much cheaper than hiring someone full-time, as Jim just said. So go to Bambi.com slash martini right now for your free HR audit. It's spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash martini. Bambi.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our first crazy martini now. And it's time for a little more Kamala Harris word salad. But she's also just denying sheer reality here. She appeared on Meet the Press with Chuck Todd. And for the first time in a long time, she's been asked about the southern border. And Chuck Todd is mentioning the fact that, hey, you got two million people illegally coming to the country. Uh, you sure that we're secure down there? And uh, Kamala Harris with uh, an all-timer here. We have two million people cross this border for the first time ever. You're confident this border is secure? We have a secure border in that that is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration. But there are still a lot of problems that we are trying to fix, given the deterioration that happened over the last four years. We also have to put in place a, 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 a law and a plan for a pathway for citizenship. So, Jim, it's secure because they wish it was secure. It's a priority for them, so therefore it is secure. I'm not sure how that logic works. Secondly, uh, whatever you say about the Trump administration, they had the uh, illegal numbers way down. They had Mexico agreeing with them. The Remain in Mexico policy was working. At least sections of the wall were going up, replacing bad parts of the wall and so forth. And then she just turns it into (laughs) pathway to citizenship, which means she doesn't want to talk about this and she has no answers. Greg, it seems that with a lot of statements from this administration, you hear a statement and you're left with the question of, okay, are they dumb or do they think we're dumb? And some version of that is, you know, are they're, obviously they're lying or they're describing something that is the opposite of the facts. We have Karine Jean-Pierre saying that it was Republicans who were trying to keep schools closed and Democrats were trying to open them and stuff like that. Um, there are two things that jumped out at me about this statement in a you know very short se- you know very short segment there. The first is this assertion that wanting it is the same as having it. Um, and I urge you when your mortgage payment is due, uh, try that argument or to your credit card company or to anyone to whom you money. Well, I want to have the money, therefore I have the money. But the second thing that kind of jumps out at me is I wonder if Kamala Harris, here we are, it's September 2022. And whether she still has a certain amount of verbal autopilot, and yes, I realize I can be as uh, guilty of this sin as anyone else for the number of times people have counted that I've said, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> but when she says, for the past four years, this crisis at the border, well, when did you take office, Vice President Harris? I believe it was January 20th, 2021. So we're now a year and a half, coming up on two years of you guys being in control. I wonder if this is something she got used to saying, blaming the problem at the border on the Trump administration. As you point out, that was not the case, both in terms of when Trump came into office, there was an immediate drop. Um, I think some of this was a per- you know a perception in Central America that oh, Trump's in charge, we can't go across anymore, they're gonna throw us back. And then obviously, when the COVID-19 pandemic came along, pretty much people trying to cross the border stopped. Uh, everybody was dealing with their own issues. Everybody's afraid to make the journey, et cetera, et cetera. So that there may have been outside factors imp- impacting that, but there's a very clear message. The Trump administration is not allowing you to stay here. Finally, her last argument that, well, we have a problem with secure border 
Really, the problem is a lack of a path to citizenship. No, 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 no. That's the opposite of the problem, uh, 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 Madam Vice President. Really, it's the promise of an amnesty. It is the promise of, oh, you came here illegally. We're going to let bygones be bygones. We're going to allow you to become a citizen of the United States, even though you broke the law. That is what's bringing people here. That's why people say, you know, the idea of even talking about an amnesty is bad because it basically, you know, gets people to say, oh, I, I want to get in before uh, they cut it off. I want to make sure I, I qualify for this amnesty. I'd better get to the United States of America. So in a very short, like, what, 20, cents, 20, 20 seconds or so, 30 seconds, Kamala Harris says three things that are blatantly wrong and make the situation worse. Well done, Madam Vice President. <laughs> exactly right. Well, they're taking a page out of the Obama book. Remember how everything was bad because he inherited it and that he used that excuse all the way through his first term and and at least partway through his second term until he realized he had to convince people things were good when he left. Um, the only difference this time is, is that Obama actually did have a economic mess handed to him at the end of the Bush administration due to the financial crisis. Whereas with the border, uh, due to uh, better enforcement, better cooperation with Mexico and the pandemic, there was absolutely no uh, or very very, very little illegal immigration problem in January 2021. And Biden, uh, through his uh, we're not going to deport anybody statement over and over again, uh, basically guaranteed that we would have this problem. So that's that's even more pathetic than the excuse Obama kept trotting out for about six years. On to our final crazy martini now, Jim. And as we said at the outset, it's related to 9-11. And basically, you got a lot of people on the left deciding that January 6th is comparable to 9-11. Uh, you got a lot of people on Twitter, some of whom I've heard of, some of whom I haven't, uh, saying that uh, this is actually worse because uh, the Republican Party is aiding and abetting uh, the erosion and the uh, destruction of democracy and so forth. And look, we're, we if you've listened to this podcast, you know we're not going to defend what happened on January 6th. <laughs> that was uh, beyond the pale what happened at the Capitol. The riot was a disgrace. Anybody who attacked a police officer should be prosecuted. A little more confusing about the people who got waved in and, and didn't do anything violently. But whatever the case is, it was not a good day. But to compare that with people deliberately trying to destroy the country, uh, taking nearly 3,000 lives in all the uh, incidents up in New York and Pentagon and and Flight 93 and so forth, and to compare that with uh, was a political rally that turned into a riot, an unarmed one, mind you. Um, you know, it's just beyond the pale. And for Democrats to try to make that comparison, as ugly as January 6th was, is absolutely ludicrous. So, life has a lot of bad things, and I find it fascinating that people get sucked into these arguments about, well, this thing is bad and that thing is bad, but this bad thing is worse than that bad thing. And this need to emphasize that this bad thing that is associated with the opposition party or with some figure I don't like has to be worse than this other bad thing. January 6th was really bad. Um, even if you put aside the uh, later suicides of Capitol policemen and things like that, there was still a great deal of injuries. There was still a great deal of property damage. There was still an attempt to disrupt the legitimate and uh, constitutional duties of the legislative branch of our government. And there was just a, gen- you know, there, there was the anecdotes of uh, God, these idiots smearing feces on the walls of the U.S. Capitol. Right? This was like this childish tantrum glorified as some sort of, you know, proclaiming itself as some sort of effort to defend liberty and, and you know all this nonsense like that. 
was really, really bad. You'd like to think that just pointing to the death toll would make you say, okay, well, both of these are bad, but one of these is significantly, significantly worse than the other, and you probably should not compare them. I, you shouldn't have to lay this out, but you know what? Not every bad experience is comparable to, say, slavery. Not every injustice in this world is comparable to, say, the Holocaust. Not every person who is bad in this world is comparable to Hitler. You probably should avoid these kinds of really um, intense, uh, outstanding examples from history if you're not 100% sure that they really line up. I think it was... Uh, Dennis Miller pointing out the number of people who called uh, George W. Bush, you know, Bush Hitler, right, comparing him to Hitler, uh, particularly because of the Iraq war. And he said that in the minds of some folks on the left, everyone is like Hitler, except for the dictator with the funny mustache who's invading his neighbors. Um, and I just kind of this observation about when is it OK to make these kinds of comparisons? I think 9-11 can and should really should stand out as a unique horror in American life. And that January 6th, a very bad event, and the people who are responsible should be held accountable, and it appears they are being held accountable by a court of law after a fair trial. Every one of these defendants had their right to counsel. Every one of these defendants has had plenty of opportunities to lay out their side of events. Um, I just don't think they're comparable. I just, you know, the guy in the water buffalo hat is a bad guy, but he's not Muhammad Atta. And I, I, you know, the idea that you look at these two and can't see distinctions uh, is, an, you know, I think it's not just the uh, reflexive partisanship of this age. I think it's also this need to hype things. It's need to build. It's can't, uh, you know, to quote Spinal Tap, they have to turn it all up to eleven. It can't just be January sixth was a bad day. It has to be comparable to that. And the other thing that just I kind of reminded of, I think it was Jonathan Chait. Um, I think somebody after in the aftermath of the 2016 election said, you know, Trump's victory on, on Election Day 2016 was the darkest day of my life. And I was like, oh, I guess you're you're you weren't born on 9-11 uh, because that would seem to be that strikes me as the obvious contender for the worst day of any American's life. Uh, I suppose we have some folks who are old enough to uh, have lived through Pearl Harbor. Um, but by and large, you know, I can understand if you feel that way about the Kennedy assassination. We've had terrible events in our history, but boy, you know, 9-11, if that doesn't, the idea of, oh, and a president I disagree with and that I don't like and I think is terrible. Oh, you want to like, okay, but that's not nearly 3,000 people being wiped out in an instant before our eyes. Really? But again, I think some people, this is, this is their shtick. This is what they do. This is how they identify themselves. Um, and everything is wrapped up in this and they can't see anything so mundane as the human cost uh, of something as terrible as 9-11. But that's where we are here in uh, 2022. Hey, week's off to a great start, isn't it, Greg? <laughs> yeah. Here's the clip I meant to play in the intro to this segment. Here's uh, Virginia Senator Mark Warner. I didn't want you to think it was just a collection of internet randos that we were talking about here. So uh, here he is on Face the Nation yesterday making this comparison. And our country came together in many ways. Um, we defeated the terrorists because of the resilience of the American public, because of our intelligence community. And we are safer, better prepared. Um, the stunning thing to me is here we are 20 years later and the attack on the symbol of our democracy was not coming from terrorists, but it came from literally insurgents attacking the Capitol on January 6th. So I believe we are stronger. 
I believe our intelligence community has performed remarkably. I think the threat of terror has diminished. I think we still have new challenges in terms of nation state challenges, Russia and longer term, a technology competition with China. But I do worry about some of the activity in this country where the election deniers, the insurgency that took place on January 6th, that is something I hope we could see that same kind of unity of spirit. Yeah, I think there's more than a technology rivalry with China going on right now. Uh, another guy I've never heard of, but he's got 187,000 followers, says uh, Andrew Wartman's his name. Bin Laden didn't fly any of the planes that were hijacked himself, but we held him accountable for planning and executing a deadly terrorist attack on our country. 20 years later, Republicans not only enabled their leader to do the same thing, they helped him do it. So uh, there are people with significant followings who are uh, spouting this. And I don't know, Jim, if this dovetails in with... Uh, Biden's everybody who disagrees with me is an extremist uh, uh, claptrap right now, but it's 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 not healthy for the country. That's for sure. Yeah, let's if we pull on that thread longer, you're you're comparing Trump and elected Republicans to Osama bin Laden, and how the United States. We all know how the United States responded to Osama bin Laden. Is the argument there should be a Navy SEAL raid on the uh, Mar-a-Lago compound? You know it. Um, the, the one thing that Warner said, and I, again, it's a bad and dumb comparison, but it did remind me of something. I was watching a documentary about Oklahoma City, the Oklahoma City bombing, and they were talking about the moment that Timothy McVeigh, who had been picked up, I think on a speeding ticket or something, some very minor offense. Right. Um, he, the word gets out that he's in this small town or small city police station and you know the TV cameras all roll there. And they bring out McVeigh in his orange jumpsuit and people, there, there was this like audible gasp. Now people probably, you know, those who were around in 1995 probably remember, the immediate thought was that the bombing in Oklahoma City might have some connection to Middle Eastern terrorism, Islamist terrorism, Saddam Hussein getting revenge or something like that. Um, and the, the description, you know, there's John Doe number two, the possibility that there's some Arab man had been involved and things like that. So now all of a sudden America says, we got the guy, we've got the, the perpetrator and they see him and he's a white guy with blonde hair in a crew cut. And there was that gasping sense of, oh my God, it's one of us. We expect it to be one of those guys. And you know, the idea of, okay, over in Afghanistan, Bin Laden, these religious yahoos, they don't, their whole world is all about doing what Allah says and kill anybody who disagrees and all that kind of stuff. But one of ours, somebody who'd been in our military, somebody who'd taken an oath. Like, so I can understand that aspect of being angrier at an American because you expect more. Being angry at an American because you're like, hey, you're supposed to be on our side. You're not supposed to turn against your own government. You're not supposed to turn against your own institutions like Congress doing its job and you know certifying the vote, et cetera. I get that. I don't think you can say from that, ah, well, in that case, you know, January 6th was worse than 9-11. No, no, it doesn't work that way, Senator Warner. Sorry, not, not giving it to you. No, not at all. So, yeah, glad to uh, blow up that myth here as best we can. Uh, Jim, we've covered a lot of ground today, and we'll do some more tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do join us again tomorrow. Uh, thanks very much for subscribing to the podcast. If you don't already subscribe, please do that. Tell a friend as well. Uh, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Uh, thank you very much for your five-star ratings, your kind reviews. Don't forget about Jim's brand new book, Gathering Five Storms, the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. 
Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday and join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. David Limbaugh and his daughter, Kristen Limbaugh Bloom, join me to share their new book, The Resurrected Jesus. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, we'll also discuss how America is suffering by drifting away from God and why believers need to be the light to our neighbors and work to heal our divided nation. And Kristen reminds us how our faith should anchor us in these chaotic times. Follow The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.